welcome to Good Chris Elfian Talks. I'm Levi. And I'm Chris. And I'm Brian. Thank you for joining us this week. On this podcast, we select one talk a week to help us get the Bible in our daily news feed. We post a new episode at the start of each week with a short intro beforehand to kind of set the stage for the talk you're about to listen to. And now, let's talk more about this week's talk. For this week, we're listening to a talk that was given back at the end of 2022 by Brother David Jenkins from the Cardiff Museum Place Ecclesia in the UK. Uh, This was given at the Rugby Ecclesia in the same country, where he is taking a look, and it is a public lecture style talk, looking at inspiration and what it means and what is the significance of our belief that the Bible isn't the inspired Word of God. Uh, And Brother David is looking into the different meanings and the impact of that and sort of diving more into how the inspiration of God's word uh, would have come to be. Uh, the starting reading that he used for this was taken from Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. So if you want to read through that before you listen to the talk, that is the section of verses that he asked before he gave it. Uh, and I really just enjoyed Brother David's look into this. Uh, This was a suggestion that we were given, and I found it to be a really powerful public lecture that he gave, just underlying both the importance and the confidence that we have in the scriptures that we read and how important those are for us uh, to be able to understand that the words that we read aren't just something that somebody made up. And he also spent some time looking at almost how the act of inspiration would have been perceived by the very people writing it. So I thought that was kind of an interesting little nugget later on in the in the class. Uh, so I hope you find this as inspirational as I did. Sorry for the pun. Uh, with that, I will turn it over to Brother David Jenkins for his talk, Inspiration, What Does It Mean? So we've just read a short section from Paul's last letter, or the last of his letters that we have amongst the letters that are in the pages of the New Testament, where he's writing to Timothy, a younger man, but one of his close companions in the work of teaching the gospel around the Roman Empire. And he's giving advice here to this younger man as to how to conduct himself when the Apostle Paul is no longer around. And as you'll no doubt have gleaned from the few verses that we read, that he's putting a great emphasis on Timothy, paying attention to God's words. He tells us that God's word is able to make us wise for salvation. (coughs) He tells us in verse 16 that the word of God is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that men and women of God might be thoroughly equipped with everything that they need uh, to live as God would have them live. Uh, So there's this emphasis upon the word of God, and it is useful, it is profitable for these various different purposes. Uh, And Paul says that the reason why the word of God is useful for these different functions is because it is given by inspiration of God. It's directly because it is given by inspiration of God 
verse 16, that it has these various qualities. It can perform those various functions. And when Paul writes about all scripture, then he, of course, includes the part of the Bible that we know as the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. But by the time that Paul is writing this last of his letters within the compass of the New Testament, then the vast majority of the material that makes up our New Testament parts of our Bible are available and circulated around the congregations of believers as well. So that as far as Paul is concerned, the entirety of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is useful for these purposes because God has provided it by inspiration. Now, the subject inspiration, what does it mean? I'm not going to deal with it in any kind of technical way this afternoon. So I'm just going to spend two minutes on this word inspiration, and that's about as technical as it gets. So when we speak to one another, then we are breathing in order to live, and we're taking air in and out of our lungs, and we pass air over our vocal cords, And in that process, we are able to produce sounds whereby we communicate with one another, that we breathe out, that we pass the air over our vocal cords, and we use that to speak. Now, the word inspiration, and these New Testament chapters was first written in the Greek language. The original word translated inspiration means God breathed. So whereas we breathe in order to speak and use our breath to speak, then really what inspiration means is that God has spoken, that God has breathed and spoken and communicated. So that because God has spoken, then the various parts of the Bible are useful for the different functions that the Apostle Paul describes. (coughs) But how I'd like to address this topic this afternoon is to look at the experience of some of those individuals who were subject to inspiration. Some of those individuals that God used to produce his word and see what they say about their experience and how that can help us to understand what inspiration really means. Now, I'd like to begin with Moses. So I'm going to go back to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and Exodus chapter 4. We can go to Moses, because Moses is the man that God used to write the first five books of the Bible, as we have them in our Bibles. Moses was the individual that God used to lead the children of Israel from their slavery in the land of Egypt and through the wilderness to the borders of the land that he had promised to their fathers, the land that we know as the land of Israel. And in Exodus chapter 4, Moses is 80 years of age, and he has been living in the land of Midian for 40 years, having run away from the land of Egypt aged 40. 
And God is interacting with Moses through his angel and telling Moses that the time has come for Moses to return to the land of Egypt and to take up the commission that God has set before him of leading the nation of Israel from their slavery. And Moses is not too keen on taking up the task. In fact, here in Exodus chapter 4, he's making a sequence of excuses as to why he is not really suitable for the role that God has asked him to do. So I'd like to pick up verse 10 here of Exodus chapter 4. Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. So here's one of Moses's reasons why he can't be a suitable leader for the people of Israel. He says that he's not eloquent, he's not good at speaking, he's not a charismatic leader. Whether that's true or not is questionable, and we could debate that from other Bible verses, but that's the reason that uh, Moses gives here. He can't speak well, so he can't be the leader. Now look at God's answer to that objection in verse 11. The Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth, or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. So God's response to Moses is that he is the creator, that he was responsible for creating the mouth of men and women. And therefore, in effect, he says to Moses, look, I created your mouth, so don't tell me you can't speak. But, But he goes beyond that, doesn't he? Because there in verse 12, he says, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. So that God who made man's mouth could teach you what to say. And that's exactly what he says he will do in the case of Moses, that actually Moses's role as leader won't be dependent on Moses' ability to speak. It would be dependent upon God's ability to place words in the mouth of Moses. (coughs) So that's that's really the starting point for our consideration of inspiration. What does it mean? Well, God who made the mouth can teach it what to say. didn't depend on the man's eloquence. It depended on the words that God provided. Now, God used Moses to communicate a great deal of information to the nation of Israel. He gave them the laws that they would live their national life by. He gave them the details of how they should worship God in an appropriate way. Details which taught them many things about the principles by which he would extend salvation to men and women. And God went into amazing detail as to how Israel should do things in their worship of him. That the center of the worship of the nation of Israel from the time of Moses was the tabernacle, a tent which Israel first constructed in the wilderness and that was filled with various items of furniture that God had described and that would be used in his worship. 
And God talks about setting up the tent, talks about packing up the furniture, talks about the different individuals even who would carry that furniture as the nation of Israel moved from place to place in their journey in the wilderness. That there's a remarkable level of detail in what God provides. Now, I'd like you to bear that in mind and come on in the pages of the Bible uh, to um, 500 years or so later to the time of King David. Now, those of you who were here this morning will, I hope, remember that we looked at the book of Chronicles. And I'd like to go to the, the same section of the book of Chronicles, but beginning at First Chronicles chapter 13. When David has become king of all the 12 tribes of Israel, has captured the city of Jerusalem uh, and decided that it will become the capital of his kingdom. And he wants to take the Ark of the Covenant, the most important of the pieces of furniture that had been made in the time of Moses, uh, and bring it up to the city of Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant represented the, the throne of God in the midst of his people. And, God, and David wanted that to be in the capital city so that the whole of the life of Israel could be focused upon their relationship with the living God. And in First Chronicles chapter 13, then David is going to attempt to achieve his aim and to move the ark of God from the place that it had been for many years up to the city of Jerusalem. I'll pick it up in verse Five of this chapter. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even unto the entering in of Hemath, to bring the ark of God from Kirjath Jearim. Verse 7 They carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart. Verse 9 When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. Verse 12 tells us, David was afraid of God that day, saying, how shall I bring the ark of God home to me? So, so David has great intentions. He wants to bring this significant piece of furniture up to the capital city. And Uzzah, one of the men who is um, transporting this piece of furniture on a cart, also has great intentions because the, the oxen have stumbled, the cart is shaking. Uh, there is a danger, perhaps, that this very important item might fall from the cart and be damaged. And, and so he stretches out his hand in order to steady it with the best of intentions. And the Lord is displeased with his action, so displeased that he strikes him and that he dies. And David, as we read, was afraid, asking the question, well, how shall I bring the ark of God home to me to the city of Jerusalem? Now, if we turn over a couple of pages to chapter 15, we find out that some months later, David was successful in bringing the ark of God up to Jerusalem. Start at the beginning of the chapter. David made him houses in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched for it a tent. Then David said, none ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites, 
For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. And David gathered all Israel together to Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord unto his place, which he had prepared for it. And if we read on, then with great joy and rejoicing, then David and the people are able to achieve their objective and to bring the ark of God to set it up in the city of Jerusalem. But you see what's happened between chapter 13 and chapter 15 is that David has got his Bible out. Well, a series of scrolls, as the Bible would have been in the time of David. And he's got the scrolls that were first written by Moses, and he's read through those scrolls. And he's come to the book of Numbers and the scroll for the book of Numbers, and he's read what we call Numbers chapter 4, and he can say, none but the Levites ought to carry the ark of God. He's read those very detailed instructions that God gave to Israel through Moses, and now he knows the right way that God has authorized for the ark of God to be moved from place to place. And when he conforms to what God had written, then he meets with success. Now, now here's, here's the point for our topic this afternoon, that, that 500 years or so have passed between the time of Moses and the time of David, between the time when those instructions were given and when the time that David is trying to move the ark. But the passage of time doesn't matter one bit. The word of God has not changed. And the word that was authoritative in the time of Moses is equally authoritative in the time of David's. It's God's word. It's authoritative. It does not change. Now then, David himself was used by God to write sections of the Bible. The Psalms particularly are associated with the pen of David and the ability of David with music to worship and to praise God. But there are other parts of the Bible that also contain words that God used David to write. And I'd like to take you now, if you're following in your Bibles, to the second book of Samuel and chapter 23, because there we have a section which is described for us as the last words of King David's. Now, in this section, we get perhaps the fullest description of inspiration that we get anywhere in the Bible. We get a description of inspiration. We don't get an explanation that the Bible doesn't explain how inspiration works. It doesn't explain how it is that God can use a man to speak certain words or to write certain words and for them yet to be exactly the words that God wished to express. It doesn't explain that process, but David does get as close as we get to a description of what inspiration means. Now, Second Samuel chapter 23. Now, these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said... And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, 
Now, you might say David has been a bit repetitive there, don't you think? Yeah. Did you miss the point that David wrote these words? <laughs> these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, the anointed of the God of Israel and the sweet psalmist of Israel said. Well, three times David has said, these are my words. But look how he continues in verse two. The spirit of the Lord spake by me and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. And then he goes on with the message. He that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. So you see, in verse one, David says three times, these are David's words. These are my words. But then in verse two, in the beginning of verse three, then three or four times he says, well, actually, these are God's words. And that's inspiration. That the words that were expressed by a man could at one and the same time be the words of God. Exactly the words that God intended should be expressed. And it's not just restricted to words. I'm going to go now to the first book of Chronicles again, and this time to chapter 28. Now, one of David's great ambitions was to build a temple for the Lord in the city of Jerusalem uh, to where he had moved the ark. And God prevented him from undertaking uh, that task, but said that instead it should be performed by his son, Solomon. Uh, but David, not put off, made extensive preparation for the building of a temple for God that would be carried out after his death. And in First Chronicles chapter 28, we have some of the preparations that David made for the construction of that temple. Verse 11 of First Chronicles 28. Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch, and of the houses thereof, and of the treasuries thereof, and of the upper chambers thereof, and of the inner parlours thereof, and of the place of the mercy seats, and the pattern of all that he had by the spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord, and of all the chambers round about of the treasuries of the house of God, and of the treasuries of the dedicated things. And come down to verse 19. All this, said David... The Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the works of this pattern. You see what David is saying? He's saying, here are the architectural drawings. Here are the plans which I'm going to give to my son Solomon to allow this temple to be constructed. And these aren't my plans, but as I drew the lines on the paper that God's hand was upon me so that they should exactly conform to the pattern that God determines. Now, David is a great man, described in the Bible as the man after God's own hearts. But even David, with his wonderful insight into the things of God, was not sufficient to draw those plans according to his own ideas. That for a place, a temple, a house where God should be worshipped, it was necessary 
that they should be exactly right to express the ideas that were appropriate for the worship of God from God's perspective and not from the perspective of a man, however great that man might be. So that God didn't leave it to chance. He didn't leave it to the ability of David's. That, you know, David's a great man. I'm sure he'll get something approximately right. That that wasn't sufficient. That God guided David's hands so that the plan would be exactly what was appropriate for a house for God to be worshipped. That the things that God provided, the ideas that God expressed, were not in any way limited by the capacity of the individual that he used. It it wasn't limited by David's understanding or David's insights, that God could overrule that, go over and beyond that, to ensure that they were exactly right as God intended. Now, in the New Testament, then Peter has something to say about that, the Apostle Peter, in the letters that he wrote, which we find towards the end of the pages of the New Testament. Let's go to the first letter of Peter, first of all, and chapter one. Peter is writing about the salvation that God has made available to men and women through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 10, he says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you. So here's Peter confirming that God was not limited by the understanding or the times or the circumstances or anything else that related to the men that he used, the prophets that he used, to write the different books of the Old Testament. He's saying, in fact, that because God controlled the output of those individuals, that they studied their own writings. They searched diligently the things that they had recorded so that they might understand more fully the things that God had communicated through them concerning the work of the Christ, his son, that they weren't limited by their knowledge. They could improve their understanding by studying their own words. And beyond that, because God was in control of the process, because God's inspiration was controlling the output that the prophets put down, that the things that they wrote are of even greater benefit to those who live and seek these things after the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're of greater benefit to people who lived long after the time that the prophets who wrote them lived. As Peter said there in verse 12, that they ministered to us. 
that they ministered to individuals in later times who could get the full benefit of the prophet's message because they had the blessing of being after the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore could understand fully how God achieved salvation through the life and the death and the resurrection of his son. <laughs> well, that's because God is in control. That, that, you know, let's choose a prophet, Isaiah, say, you know, writing 700 uh, BC, uh, could write something that Peter in the first century and, and ourselves in the 21st century can benefit from even more than Isaiah and his contemporaries could benefit from, even though they could benefit greatly. Because it wasn't limited by Isaiah's times. It wasn't limited by Isaiah's understanding. It, it was not limited because it was God's words that he provided to Isaiah. Now, if we come over to the second letter of Peter, just going on a few pages further in the New Testament, then Peter makes a, a, another comments about this. He's talking about the different evidences that assure followers of the Lord Jesus Christ that the things that they believe and the things that they have learned are true. And one of the things that he is talking about in this chapter is his own experience and the things that he could witness to that he had seen personally during his time with Jesus Christ in the days of the ministry of Jesus. But, but having spoken of his own personal witness to the things that he had seen, he says this in verse 19, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of the script, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is saying, you've not only got the eyewitness testimony that I can give to you. But there's an even better witness, which is the witness of prophecy, the witness of the word written by God's prophets, which gives light. It gives education. It illuminates like a light in a dark place because it's not given by man. It's not private in any way, but it comes from God. And then he made that comment in verse 21, because the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. It wasn't of man's volition that these things were written, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I've already commented that these New Testament words were first written in the Greek language. And when Peter says that holy men of God spake as they were moved, he uses a word which conveys quite a strong idea that there's a record in the Acts of the Apostles when the Apostle Paul has been taken to the city of Rome to stand trial. And during the course of that journey, he is shipwrecked along the way as the ship in which he is traveling is caught up in a mighty storm. 
And the record tells us that because of the force of the wind, then the sailors had no opportunity to steer the ship. That if they tried to steer the ship different to the way in which the wind was blowing, that the force of the wind was so great that it would have uprooted the masts and wrecked the ship earlier than it did otherwise. So the only option that the sailors had was to run with the winds. The force was so great that the ship just had to run before the force of the wind. It was compelled along by the ferocity of the gale. And the word that's used in the Acts of the Apostles to describe the ship being compelled to go in a certain direction by the force of the storm is the word that Peter uses here for holy men of God being moved by the Holy Spirit. They were compelled. They were forced along by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't down to their will. It wasn't down to their choice. It was what God required that was expressed. Now, I can illustrate that for you. Um, Going back to the Old Testament and actually to the time of Moses and going to the book of Numbers this time, if you're following. Let's go to Numbers chapter 22 and Numbers chapter 23. Because I suppose that this phenomena of inspiration varies from individual to individual. That that on the one extreme, you might have a man like David uh, of a a deeply spiritual character with tremendous insight into the word of God who could express the praises that came to his mind and the understanding that he had, and perhaps with only a small amount of change through the operation of God's spirit, became exactly what God required. On the other extreme, you might have a rare case where God uses a man who is not inclined at all to the things of God, and who God overrules completely in every way to ensure words that God requires to be spoken are spoken. And such a case is the prophet Balaam, who we read about in the book of Numbers, uh, chapters 22 and 23 here. Uh, Balaam is presented to us as a false prophet, a man who has a knowledge of the living God, But instead of using that knowledge to worship God and to seek more clearly into the things of his truth, uses the knowledge that he has to enrich himself and to manipulate others. And in this section of the book of Numbers, the nation of Israel, making their journey towards the land of Israel, are camped in the plains of Moab. And the king of that area is rather concerned by the presence of this large body of people on the borders of his lands. He's worried (coughs) that if there is conflict between them, that his kingdom will be taken from him. And he's heard of the reputation of this false prophet Balaam. So he wants Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel. And he's prepared to pay handsomely for Balaam to do that. And there's nothing that Balaam wants more than to take the money that's on offer 
He wants to fulfill the commission that the king has given him. He wants to take the opportunity to curse these people and to receive a bountiful reward. But before he travels, he's warned about the situation by an angel of God. Numbers chapter 22 and verse 35. The angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that thou shalt speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Balak is the king of the area. So the angel said to Balaam, only the words that the angel allowed should Balaam speak. We come into... uh, Uh, Well, we can come down to uh, verse 38. When Balaam meets the king, Balaam said unto Balak, Lo, I am come unto thee. Have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that shall I speak. So he confesses that his own will has nothing to do with the words that he speaks. And when we come into the next chapter, then we find Balaam trying to curse the nation of Israel in order to receive the rewards. And every time he opens his mouth to curse, then instead blessings come out. And we have a slightly ridiculous situation, really, where where the king is saying to him, well, you know, I, I want you to curse and you're speaking blessings. Well, maybe if you come behind the hill and you can't even see these people, you'll be able to curse them. So he goes behind the hill and he, and he tries to curse. And every time he tries to curse, then instead blessings come out. Verse 5 of chapter 23. The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return unto Balak and thus thou shalt speak that the word, the Lord rather, controlled the tongue of Balaam to enforce that the words that the Almighty required to be spoken were the words that he spoke. The king gets very frustrated if we come down to verse 11 of chapter 23. Balak said unto Balaam, what hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemies and thou hast blessed them altogether. And Balaam said, answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord hath put in my mouth? So there, God in absolute control of what Balaam says. A man desperate to curse, but only able to speak blessings. Compelled to bless by the will of God that overruled the will of the man. God's word is not dependent on or changeable by man in any way. That's what the experience of Balaam and the other prophets is telling us. Now, I'll go back to the New Testament for our final few references. We started with the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul also comments about the inspiration that underpinned his teaching. Take you, if you're following, to the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, to the communities of believers in the city of 
Corinth, where he speaks about the character and the quality of the inspiration of God as it operated in the teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ. First of Corinthians and uh, chapter two, verse 12. Now we, he says, speaking initially about himself and the other apostles, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That's Paul. You know, this isn't education. This isn't cleverness. This isn't the ability of these teachers that God is using This is God's activity that through the Holy Spirit, he has taught them the things they are to express. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a brilliant man. Before he became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was one of the great up-and-coming talents of the Jewish establishments. He had the best education in the things of the Jewish understanding of the word of God and the Old Testament scriptures that it was possible to have. He he had a brilliant mind, a lawyer's mind to to argue with logic. It's got nothing to do with my education. It's got nothing to do with how clever I am. It's got nothing to do with the different abilities that I might have and that somebody else might not got nothing to do with my ability, but it's down to the words which God teaches through the operation of his Holy Spirit. So even a brilliant scholar like Paul would admit that it's not his learning, not his understanding, not his ability, but utterly controlled by God's. Now, the outworking of that in an illustration comes towards the end of this first letter to the Corinthians, uh, if I can take you now to chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and uh, verse 37, towards the end of the chapter there. Uh, One of the things that we learn when we read through the first letter that Paul wrote to the believers at Corinth was that he had opponents, that there were other men who went to those communities of believers and tried to teach them something a little different to the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And in order to try and get others to accept their point of view, chose to try and belittle and undermine the Apostle Paul. And and that's been happening. And that's the background to what Paul has to say here. So in verse 37 of 1 Corinthians 14, he says, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. So with one eye on his opponents, we're trying to undermine him. So look, this is the situation. If anyone comes here and they set themselves up to be a prophet, to speak for God or a spiritual person who can give guidance to the believers, let them first acknowledge that Paul's words, the things that he has written to the believers in Corinth, are the commandments 
of the Lord Jesus. Because they weren't Paul's words at all. They didn't depend on Paul. They were the words that Paul had been taught by the Holy Spirit. They were the commandments of the Lord. Their authority came not from Paul and any personal authority he might have, but from God entirely. And you know, that even applied to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, the greatest of men. Finally, let's go to John chapter 8 and see the Lord Jesus Christ speaking about his own experience. In John's gospel, Jesus is often found in discussion and argument, we might say, with the leaders of the Jewish nation, their religious teachers and authority. And he's in that situation here in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 26. Jesus speaking, he says, I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me, the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. But, but you see, here is Jesus Christ himself. Here is the Son of God saying, the teaching that I'm giving you has authority, not because of any personal authority that I might have, but no, because I'm teaching, verse 26, the things which I have heard of God, the things which I've heard of him. Or in verse 28, I do nothing of myself, but as my father hath taught me, I speak these things. That the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ was authoritative because he had received it of his father. That God's word in no way rests upon the authority or the ability of men. But God has ensured that the original words that were expressed are the words that he wanted to be set down exactly as he intended. So, so in thinking about this topic of inspiration this afternoon and, and seeing just a, a few examples of those who were subject to it and experienced it, that, then we can you know, draw out several key principles that the Bible puts to us. That, that God who made the mouth could teach you what to say. That, that God would control the process. That, that God's word does not change. The passage of time doesn't alter it. It's authoritative. That God's word is not limited in any way by the understanding or the time or the circumstances of those whom he used to produce it. That God's word is not dependent or changeable by man. So inspiration, what does it mean? 
Well, let me tell you what it means in practical terms. Inspiration means that the Bible that we are privileged to read is God's words. And because it is God's words, we cannot afford to ignore it. Thank you for listening to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. We hope this talk helped you in your walk. If you would like to hear more, please subscribe for new episodes and leave a review in Apple Podcast or whichever service you are using to help more people find the show when they search for it. If you enjoyed this particular talk, please share it with someone who you think might enjoy it as well. For show notes on the talk you just listened to, visit our show page at anchor.fm GCT or check the show notes section of your podcast player. Please share your thoughts on the talk from this week on our Facebook or Instagram pages, where we are at Good Christadelphian Talks, on Twitter, where we are at GCT underscore podcast, or leave a comment on our YouTube channel where these talks are posted as well. If you know of a great talk, we want to know about it too. Send a suggestion to our email at goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media accounts. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk to you next week.